Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm talking to Jenny Slate. She's a writer, comedian, and actress, a true original, and someone who's been fearless and frank as she's made her way in Hollywood. I first discovered her in The Brilliant Obvious Child, but who can forget her hilarious, groundbreaking, and insightful Marcel the Shell? That series has over 30 million views. She's got a brand new comedy special called Stage Fright, which combines her stand-up with home videos and interviews with her family, as well as a new book called Little Weirds, a collection of short essays which Mindy Kaling has called magical and John Mulaney has called poignant and beautiful and is now a New York Times bestseller. She's been on the road performing sold-out shows of her Little Weirds tour, which she has described as an evening of live reading and very alive chatting. In this conversation, we talk about everything from her writing process to the patriarchy, visiting psychics, and PMS. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Krista. It's great to see you. You've been super busy. I just see you in like, uh, I feel like the ether. You've been on a book tour. You've been on all the chat shows. You have this monster special that's so great on Netflix called Stage Fright. Yeah. Where you talk about everything. (laughs) (laughs) And we get to see you in your grandmother's clothes, which I love. I wanted to kind of do the whole interview in just your grandmother's accent. Oh. You're fine. You're you're gorgeous. You're gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Her favorite thing is, I don't know why they steal the sugar from the Starbucks. Starbucks. I can't believe it. How, How huge was it that you left Massachusetts? Like... It feels like your family is so steeped in mass. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Uh, My sisters both live there. I mean, I actually kind of live there now. I mean, I do. Um, You do? You moved back? I do. I moved back partially. So I live there. My fiancé is from there. And um, we live in an oceanside town in what they call South Coast, Massachusetts, which I had never heard of before I met him. Um... But uh, it's just Buzzards Bay, like right near Martha's mm-hmm. Vineyard, and, and I've I live there a little more than half the year, um, wow. in the warm time and in the autumn, and then we come to LA and live here in the winter. But I mean, leaving Massachusetts in general felt like it, a must, a must happen. I had to do it if I wanted to become an actress, um, and for a while I thought of Massachusetts as like a place that didn't have what I needed. Uh, because it didn't have access to the entertainment industry, really. And um, and I didn't know anyone in the entertainment industry. And I think, you know, there's a piece in my book called Deer Hoof, Dream Deer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's about, like, the pain of feeling like you're straying from your flock a little bit, but the necessary, necessary departure in that. I love that piece. Yeah. Uh, 
in the book Little Weirds, which I highly recommend. It's very easy to read, and it's like a journey. We go on this like kind of emotional journey. I I felt everything while I was reading this, and I'm it glad. was not exa- and it was not at all what I expected. Also, it, which yeah. I love too. It's meant to be light as a feather, deep as a well. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Because I well, I mean, I don't know. I interrupted your question. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. But one of <laughs> now I forgot about because well, now yeah. I'm thinking about light as a feather, deep as a well. Yeah, uh, my little mantra. While I was writing it. Why this book now? What made you want to express this in this way? It's so be- it's so poetic, and I didn't know that your dad was a poet. Yeah, and. Obviously, you grew up with this kind of language being in your house. Yeah. And I love the way that you were able to incorporate Jenny and the language and make it this book and make it and tell your stories without losing you and without losing the language. It's kind of like you married the language with your personality. Yeah. Or that, you know, it's it's more probably like I've been separating out certain language that does not feel that it can be integrated with comedy or um, like in an interview or or whatever, or, you know, in a comedy script or whatever I might write. Um, I've always been a reader. I read a lot. I love poetry. My father is a poet. And um, I don't know, I guess I, in a very positive way, just didn't feel that that was my space. Um, and uh, and so I didn't, I don't think of this book as poetry, but in general, I am sort of loath to define it. Um, but I do think that, this is such a strange thing to say, but sometimes when I started to do Twitter, sometimes I would... Um, I would tweet things that were like purely emotional, but I wanted them to also be beautiful. And that's how I discovered a connection to language that is beautiful and gentle. And uh, and that was already there for me. And nobody ever was like, Twitter's for jokes. What are you doing? Like it was always sort of accepted in a way that I didn't really notice. But then, you know, in today's world, when I feel like the rhetoric is just fairly brutal and there is a constant sense of we are all in combat, whether or not you're, you know, uh, supporting Trump or you're like a Bernie bro or whoever you are, there is a sense that we aren't resting and that um, softness has been forgotten as an option for how to use your language. Um, I really wanted to write this book to show myself that I think sweetness is a strength and that it's not supposed to be an afterthought or um, like an accessory to a personality, that it can be the core and and part of a belief system that is guiding. You said that much better than I did. (laughs) (laughs) When you write, do you write in the morning? Do you have a certain discipline with when you're writing and how many times do you edit? Do you let people read it? Like, what's your process? I'm very undisciplined. And um, very stressed out sometimes before I can write. Um, like I have a piece due for McSweeney's on tomorrow, and it is so very far from complete. There's like a few notes on a page about a marble that I stole. Like it's nothing. There's nothing there, and I, I wait. I tend to wait to the last minute. But once I'm in there, um, I do like to write in the morning, like dawn. I like to get up really, really early and make coffee. 
and um, deal with like a few small domestic tasks and then write for like three hours. And I take breaks and walks. And what happened with this book was I started very, very early in the morning and would write and take walks and write and take walks and eventually and be worn out by the night. And eventually, as the pieces started to come together, I would get really excited about them and I became nocturnal and would write just at night. Um, which was, and like right through the night, which is really a cool thing to do. It feels good. <laughs> wow, right through the night till yeah. dawn. Mm-hmm. And at any time, did you have any self-filter of like, why, why am I doing this? I am sharing too much. This is too vulnerable. Why am I putting this out there? I know exactly why I'm doing it. You know, I'm doing it because I need it. This is what I need to see. And um, I'm doing it in honor of the writers that have influenced me and I'm doing it because it's like the ripe like it's ready the thing that was growing in me is ready to come out but what I did filter out were sort of like preaching to the choir uh what felt like lectures about um about like what behavior is good or bad and there's still stuff in there about like how it feels like what it feels to like to listen to um that sort of new breed of misogynist who um, wants to align himself with the Me Too movement because he thinks it's like a good look for him. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that really pisses me off. Um, but I think I filtered out anger that was only explosive and made sure to put in um, rage that was fertile. And that's the difference between being reactive and being mm-hmm. intentional. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. And I also just tried to not hurt anyone's feelings, including my own. Because that is, like, I just don't think there's really anyone that looks back on uh, self-induced conflict and is like, that was a good move. That was probably perfect. <laughs> the way I just, like, stormed in there and was like, you're a dick. You know, yeah. like, nobody, you always look back, I, at least for me, like, I always look back and I'm like, could have used a bit more grace. Mm-hmm. And uh, without being repressive, it's like, how do I just say everything I need to say? And sometimes it's like gross or or scary and and still feel that my dignity is intact because you can tell when it isn't. You know, everyone knows. It's just like with dudes, like with the whole misogynist question, you know, when you're gross, you Mm -hmm. actually know, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're gross, (laughs) you know, you know, when you know, you know, when you know, you know, when you're gross. Do you think that you had to go through the rage and the undignified part to get to where you are right now? Yes. Right. Like you have to have those. Right. You can't punish yourself for that stuff. No, it's just that sometimes they don't belong in a book that will last forever. They belong at a dinner table over two bottles of wine with one other person who's not going to make you feel bad about how uh, tender, immature you need to be, how cheap you need to be uh, sometimes. Mm -hmm. But that's the stuff that if you share it, I think, with someone that really loves you and, like, will hold your identity for you when you need to be an animal, uh, then it's okay. But, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Maybe if I were an abstract painter, I could put it all in because nobody would know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> but because I'm not, and uh, and also because I'm a woman and we still live in a world where people are like, ooh, she's upset, you know? Yeah. I'm like, I still am bracing for those those societal inevitabilities that are a bummer, but yeah. I'm not placating them. I'm just like, I'm going to outsmart you a bit. Yeah. 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 But I'm at the start of it. And like. You are at the start of it. Yeah. I don't know. Like yesterday (laughs) I sucked. 
<laughs> I sucked yesterday. I really wasn't what I wanted to be. Did you have to do? Did you do a a, a reading or a performance or just a day? No, I did a, a human body with PMS, and <laughs> <laughs> I just like like now at least I I sometimes like when I have PMS, the first thing that happens is I have really bad dreams in the same time of the morning. It's like dawn hours. I'm dreaming things that are like my dream yesterday, Mm -hmm. if you'll indulge me, was that I saw a playback from some sort of a like a surveillance video. And I had been like, I wasn't there. It's not me. And there was a video of me wearing an oversized T-shirt and no bottoms. And I had such a big bush that it looked like I was wearing shorts. (laughs) And that was my dream. And I woke up and I was like, and I was mad. And I was like mad, sort of, whatever. I don't know about like pressure that women have to feel about waxing or Mm -hmm. who knows. But like, you know, that started my day. And I've just like had little stress glitches. And um, I think I was pretty good at calling them out. But, you know, like, yeah, I'm actually today I'm like a little bit bummed out about yesterday. Mm -hmm. So. But we're starting fresh and new today. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's here right. We are. Right, we are. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that struggle that women have, and I know I have it certainly. In this perceived notion that everything's changed, yeah, or that things are changing, but you know, when you have to go to the meeting or you have to go to the audition, you have to look a certain way and present a certain way because you're always going to be judged. Yeah, I mean, optics. people make. I mean, first of all, it's like there's this whole weird thing about like that's judgmental, and it's like, well. Look, I mean, un, like like cruel or unkind judgments that you make in order to push yourself above someone else. Like, yeah, those can go. But we all need to make assessments so that we can have the community we want and we can look the way we want and present the way we want and be safe, whatever. But like the whole thing about has it – is it a different world now? Sure, it's a different world from like the Salem witch trials and it's the different world from from like the 50s and the 70s and mm-hmm. the 90s and Y2K. But that doesn't mean that patriarchy is eradicated and it doesn't mean that the cultural norms have really shifted all that much. Of course, huge things have happened. The Me Too movement is a huge, huge thing. Um, the fact that like, you know, there are a lot of like, I don't know, like the Paris Review run by a woman now, you know, or whatever. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Right. The, yeah. It's a female editor. Um, but like, you know, like these institutions that have just had like dudes at the helm forever that it's changing, of course. But um, what matters the most are the like daily norms. And those are up to us. And like, I am just obsessed with rooting out the internal misogyny in myself. I know it's there. It's so weird to act like it isn't. It's very much there, just like the English language. And um, and that doesn't have to be a shameful thing. It's just imperative to to um, shine the light there and, like, sweep out those little critters. And I think that those that deep, deep conditioning will be there forever. And as a competitive person, I have to make sure that the way that I'm competing in a competitive industry is on my own terms. But I really think, like, no, things haven't changed that much. And it really bums me out when um, that's seen as a pessimistic point of view. Because it's just like, if your garden's filled with weeds, you don't say this garden sucks. You say, like, I can't wait to care for this more, and you weed it out. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, the way that it should Mm -hmm. look. I don't know. That's how it looks to me. I like that you brought up the Salem witch trial, so I never thought of it in quite that perspective. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, until I live in a world where people like Mike Pence aren't like shutting every yeah. women's clinic in Indiana or whatever. Like, until women aren't literally dying because they can't get health care, for example, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or you know, whatever. I, I just think, uh, yeah, we're not there yet, but it doesn't mean that good things aren't happening every day. And there's mm-hmm. a real way to be. That is, I think, a cool way. All right. I want to change topics a little mm-hmm. bit and talk about Jenny's special on Netflix called Stage Fright. You bring your family into it, which I loved. I love that, all that aspect of going yeah. back, the home videos, and then seeing your sisters today, right, you know, contemporary. Was it hard to get your family on board for it, or were they immediately like, okay, we'll do this? It varied. One of my sisters was more reluctant, um, and my mom was kind of like, I don't want you to make me look like, you know, and it was like, okay, (laughs) that's on you. Um, But like, also, it was so funny that my mom was like, I don't want you to, even though I'm doing her voice now and I'm kind of making fun of her. So I get why she felt that way. Um, But I was like, I'm not going to like, gotcha you, you know, Uh, but she, but, but she was shy. And when people mention it to her now, she acts like she uh, regrets it in a funny, playful way. She's like, oh God, no. But I think she likes it. Did you give them final approval? Like, last looks on this? No. I mean, they didn't ask, but I never would have, like, you know, while keeping it real, I don't, I don't, like, seek to, you know, monop- uh, what do you call it, uh, mer- capitalize off of uh, mistakes or, mm-hmm. you know, more than idiosyncrasies or whatever mm-hmm. my parents mm-hmm. have. Oh, and the dresses, your grandmother's yeah. style and dresses. I love that you could zip on those dresses. That Unbelievable. Was, was incredible. Like you just zoop right on. Yeah. It really makes you feel like you're part of a certain heritage. Like you really see the the family line there. Yeah. And that my grandmother has kept them so perfectly preserved is is really so special. It's really strange to see my grandmother as such a tiny bird-like old lady and to know that she once filled these garments like you know she she was like soft and supple you know now she's like so fragile but I remember her even growing up when she was like in her 60s like wearing like you know really cool one pieces that had matching um bathing caps and attachable long like like t-length skirts also made out of bathing suit material Oh, my God. And, like, cups in the boobs, you know, yeah. like pointy. Floater. And she was a synchronized swimmer in her youth. So my grandmother, you know, blew me away at the pool. She always looked good. And whose mother is that? My mom's. So it's your mom's. Okay. Yeah, and Nana Rochelle, who has the accent, is my dad's mom. Wow. And mm-hmm. she's from all over all over the world, right? Yeah, she was born in Havana, Cuba, and then raised in Paris until she was, like, seven. And then... Uh, and then was in the Holocaust and survived and then moved to the United States and married my grandfather when she was 18 years old. And she met him on a blind date. God, you're so lucky to have them. I know. To have them around still, too. Yeah. It's like what they say, like old Jews. Like, look at that. I mean. It's crazy. Like, my father-in-law is going to be 85 and, like, going strong, doing yeah. the stock market every day, reads the New York Times cover to cover. Yeah. It's a, it's unbelievable. Nana Connie's going to be 92 in the winter, and my grandmother, Nana Rochelle, uh, will turn 90 in June. Wow. Yeah. So there was never any question that you were going to be a writer uh, and an actress and a comedian, huh? Do You just came out of the womb that way? I always wanted to be an actress. I never thought I'd be a writer. Um, 
mm, I just just didn't cross my mind. But also because I really wanted to be an actress. And um, who did you see when you were little that you thought I want to do what they're doing? Amy Irving, Madeline Kahn. Oh, I love Madeline Kahn. Like, but other like Rosalind Russell, uh, Carol Burnett. Um, I really, really loved Marissa Tomei um, as like a yeah as like a teen. I love mm-hmm. Marissa Tomei. I loved Michelle Pfeiffer and Susan Sarandon. Um, Cherry Jones at the time mm-hmm. was like at the ART in Boston a lot, and yeah, and I also loved Judy Garland, and I loved like Sid Charisse and Ann Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a lot of movies from the library. So I watched a lot of like Technicolor, like old Hollywood musicals. Yep. Um, and I really Daddy loved Long Carrie. Legs. I didn't see. I've never oh, yeah. seen Daddy Long Legs, but I love Cary Grant and Gene Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. I just like the class also, and this what it. I mean, now like learning about old Hollywood, it it seems like a wild and totally unsafe place. But um, at the time, I just loved how beloved the people were culturally. Mm-hmm. And I loved Gilda Radner. I was obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. I was, I would feel heartbroken over not, like, somehow being inside of her identity. I love Gilda Radner, too. Yeah. She spoke, I think she was just, she broke out of all the norms of what we expected. Yeah. A woman to be and comedy to be and the Rosannas, the Dan, like, all of her stuff was just so funny and so, and it yeah. felt like she was playing in the boys club without anybody noticing and I'm a generation ahead of you so for me it just was like wow she's just there no one notices and she's just as good as they are if not better and whatnot I loved her totally yeah I mean there was when I was little I don't know how old I was but I um I guess my dad got the like SNL the first however many years it was on two VHS tapes and he just showed me all of the Gilda Radner sketches and was like, you're like this. You could do this if you want to do it. Like, this is somebody who has a spirit similar to yours. And he really made a point of being like, because I, I got in trouble in school a lot for not paying attention. And he really made a point of being like, you're actually, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just like, you're this. You're this type of thing. And um, my take on Gilda Radner was, She's not in anything. She's just better than everyone. And she is vibrating with the need to perform. And it's not bad. No one's like calling her a ham and telling her to be quiet. She has a job being herself. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, how the fuck do I get there? How do I save (laughs) myself, basically, so that I'm not, you know, like just working in an office where I never feel like I fit in because I want to bust out. And that's like my essential nature. Mm-hmm. But you're so smart. I read that you were valedictorian of your class. And then you went to Columbia. <laughs> like you're you're this like, okay, you're this disruptive brainiac though. I mean, you're also competing on another level at the highest level. Yeah. I mean, well, I should say the valedictorian thing was voted on. I mean, you had to, everybody in my class was smart. I went to a school for sure. smart kids, but um, but uh, I gave a speech that I think like guilted everybody. Like, I don't like. I wasn't like. It wasn't a popularity contest, but it was more like I need this. Like, this is important to me. <laughs> Whatever. Um, but but I did go to Columbia, and I really felt competitive academically, and I think of myself as a academic person in one way or another, and. 
Um, again, I don't know. It, it's just never the things that have never seemed whatever you would call mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But occasionally they really have felt that way. Yeah. <laughs> occasionally it's felt like, yeah, I'm not attractive because I like this or that or I'm this way. Mm-hmm. But um, that those things have really, I've divested myself. Yeah, yeah. We, we, I feel like everyone feels that way a little bit at one point or another, and yeah. you kind of outgrow it. Um, how do you feel like ten years on now? Let's look back. I want to look back a little bit because okay. you did get, you did live your dream, right? You got on SNL, which mm-hmm. was huge. Yeah. Um, you did one season. Yeah. And then, from what I've read, and I understand, obviously, in knowing you, like that was a disappointment for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Right? One, just the expectation not meeting the reality, right? Mm-hmm. When you look back on that, do you feel like, would you give yourself your other former self or someone different kind of advice, or would you handle that differently or feel differently away about it? Or do you think that it actually is the reason why you've achieved so much now? I mean, I think that failure was essential for me. Um, I wish I had a different pattern or nature, but sometimes I do have to hit bottom mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, like, not having enough self-respect <laughs> or trying to fit myself somewhere where I don't fit. Um, and I wouldn't change it, although it was hard. I would not change it um, because I needed to experience though that the absence of self-respect and I needed to feel that deep doubt about my my set of uh, skills or talents or um, instincts as a performer but yeah I mean I just yeah I would have changed it while I was there I don't like how I acted I really Mm -hmm. didn't have any any respect but when I for myself you know I just really really wanted to please which basically paralyzed me and and shut my brain down and I don't like now, I've, I'm my biggest problem when I think about it was that I felt that I had no original ideas, mm-hmm. which isn't true about who I am. But it, but put me in the wrong conditions, and I'm I'm no good for anybody. And that's what happened there. And I think I needed to know that about myself because I was super high off my own supply by getting on that show. Yeah, like I was like, holy shit, you know, I'm just like a girl from Milton, Massachusetts, and I did this, and nobody helped me except for all of the people who loved me, and I didn't. Not that I was a jerk about anything, I don't think, but I didn't focus on that. I didn't focus on love or self-love or love for the art form, and it just it just crashed and burned. But um, I am glad that I failed because I can see a version of myself where I just ran myself ragged for that seven-year contract, just kind of like eating shit and kissing ass, mm-hmm. and that would have ended everything for me, I think. Mm-hmm. I really, really think I would be getting out of my contract— um, which only would have ended a couple years ago, which is bonkers to think of, um, and that I would have been like, okay, what like huge studio comedy can I play someone's annoying boss in right now? And that's not what I want to do. Mm-hmm. But I would have been happy with it because I'm, I mean, I'm happy to perform. Yeah, I mean, I think about when I first saw you in Obvious Child. I think that's right when we met. Yeah, it is. And I was like, oh. And you were so kind to me. I was? Yeah. You were like like the, you're like the highlight of that year. You know, you threw me a dinner party. I did. I yeah. love, I just, uh, 
you just have that quality. You know, and I'm never wrong, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> you had that quality. Uh, you were just so good. And I was like, who is this person? I didn't even know that you were on SNL at the time. And I probably did in the ether that you had been yeah. or whatever, any of that stuff. I just was like, this is such a new, strong performer. And I was drawn to your talent. Let's just say that. And then I want to talk about one other thing Yeah, along this lines. I'll never forget, I was, we're at Vanity Fair, uh-huh. and I was hosting, this was not that long ago, I was hosting an event for something during Oscar week, and you came. Yeah. And you were in white. White dress, yeah, I remember that. The white dress that yeah. I was like, okay, secret body, not secret body, <laughs> like, holy shit moment in this white double Dutch satin dress with, totally. I doubt, an undergarment, uh. and there was, like, not a dent or thing anywhere. You looked... <laughs> Like, it was like looking at the sun, right? That's so nice of you to you, say. You Please like, continue. Yeah. No, it was gorgeous. <laughs> and I was talking to you, and I was so happy that you came, right? Yeah. And you were there, and we were chatting, as we do. And you were saying that after the party, you were going to go home. Yeah. And you were going to do some writing, and then you were performing later that night. That's and I, right. I couldn't grab grapple with that thought of looking at you and going like what what so you're going back to silver lake or the east side or wherever it was you were living at the time and you were going to go work on a set Mm -hmm. and then you're going to go perform yeah i'm like but it's already seven at night and the party goes it's like you know (laughs) it's like a cocktail from seven to nine and i just thought about that duality of you it made me even more interested in you as it was. And I have always wanted to come see you perform in a small venue or wherever that would be. But that kind of commitment blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, it is intense when you hear what you've done in terms of what that schedule has been. But um, I just think there's a version of myself where I don't do those things and I can... I can, it's like phantom limb thing, like when you cut a leg off and you still feel the pain, Mm -hmm. that I think I would feel the pain of not doing those creative exercises or those performances. And and sometimes it it runs me ragged. But one thing I have always felt about being a comedian, uh, which I think is an untrue, um, like weird rule or image that's put out there is like, that if you're a comedian, like, you're not really an actress or, like, you can't really have style, which obviously was, like, proven incorrect by Madeline Kahn, for example, who had such great style and um, and many other people. I mean, Kristen Wiig, style icon, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, I just want – I well, it's weird to say it, but I do want it all on my terms. But I want it all, and I want to be able to wear the party dress, and I want to, in a safe and – um, non-misogynist way uh, position myself as sexual, because I am, um, without feeling like I'm like bowing down to some sort of nasty gaze. And I also want to be able to be kind of hardcore and do my work. But I will say I, I drank more then. <laughs> <laughs> you so did? I was like maybe yeah. more reckless. Yeah. yeah. Now I don't drink very much at all, actually. But um, And that's – I just stopped drinking – like, maybe I'll have a drink a couple nights a week, but um, I just got so anxious that I had to stop drinking. But um, but back but then, which was like a couple years ago, um, yeah, I would drink. So it also made everything a bit blurry. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it was great. It was, yeah, yeah, it worked for yeah, me at the it time. It worked for you at the time, yeah. for sure. Um, all right, ghosts. This is another thing. You talk about ghosts in the book. You write about it, and in your special you talk about it. Yeah. And you do that set where I was on the edge of my seat watching uh, watching the show about, you know, the hallways, the scariest yeah. place in America. Mm-hmm. Such <laughs> a great – you did so uh, – it's executed so well. Um so do you did you ever go to a medium? Like how far were you take it? Just like, oh, I grew up in a house with ghosts, or have you gone to see a medium? Have you gone? Do you sage everything? Like where are we in the in the middle world? Yeah, I'm in there. You're I'm in, in there. there. I, I I've I do go to see psychics from time to time. I get my tarot read. Um I have never done that for the house in Milton. And I and I genuinely was always scared in there. I mean, mm-hmm. I also love the house, um, but it's really scary. And I would never stay there alone overnight by myself. And I never have. Um, and now I won't because my parents recently sold it, which is— Someone is, bought it? I, they bought it before you did the special, right? I was yeah. thinking, well, the realtor <laughs> will be really upset. <laughs> yeah, they bought it before we did the yeah. special. That's true. Um, but I—yeah, I mean, I really—I have an open belief about their, that this is not all that there is. Uh, or to put it another way, there's way more than we think that there is. Um, I be- yeah, I believe in ghosts and spirits, but I just like I don't really know what form they take. And sometimes I feel like they come in sort of a epigenetic style, like emotional trauma echo or some sort of transmission like that. But um, none of my beliefs are like firm or or like totally defined. It's more of just like I'm pretty sure there's something else. How could there not be? I think it's like weird. That there wouldn't be, but I'm not. I live a secular life, I'm not religious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, I recently went to a psychic who, yeah, totally blew my mind. Oh, and, really? Mm-hmm, and also, while I was writing this book, I went to two different psychics because they were represented by two, di- rep- recommended by two different friends, and um, they both told me the same thing in reading my cards, which was like, you are really, really need to grow up. This is your year of having to grow up. And once you find your voice and you're trying to speak in a voice to a lot of people and you don't know or trust what it is, but it is there. And when you find it, it'll be a gigantic relief. All right. Last night I was showing my 12-year-old, my sixth grader, uh-huh. Marcel. Yeah. The shell. Yes. In shoes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, come here, forward. Come here. Look at this. Look at this. And he was la- I was so joyful mm-hmm. to see him laughing at it and he was like wait what is that what is that we watched it again because obviously they watch a lot of youtube but usually it's like people doing dumb stuff sure you know or watching someone play video games which i'll never quite don't get it get don't understand i mean and i have two kids that would could do that all day watch someone play a game and then talk about what they're doing while they're watching them do it it's like but yeah i did get to show him Marcel. This little yeah. tiny little chell and things and the and just the skis, his men's toenails. He just kept laughing and he yeah. mentioned it this morning. Um, but do you think he'll ever come back? Will you ever bring him back? Yeah, we have about a year left on our feature film production, I would say. Um, but Oh, that's great. I didn't even know that. Yeah, we've just been kind of doing it undercover um, just so that we can do what we want to do. But we're fully funded by a nonprofit arts organization um, called Cinereach. And, um, and yeah, it's me, 
uh, Dean Fleischer Camp, who is my ex-husband and and plays the documentarian. You never see him, but you hear his yeah. voice in the interviews. And uh, my He's grandmother. He's asking you the questions. And your grandmother? Yeah. Oh my God. Whose name is Nana Connie. <laughs> yeah. Because we started making the Marcel movie way before, way before, you know, five years ago or whatever, before I decided to make this special and reveal that my grandmother's name is Nana Connie. Um, but Nana Connie is played by Isabella Rossellini. And wow. she improvised everything. You know, we had wow. a treatment and, like, some lines we were hoping for, but she just jumped right in. And she let us record, like, we used all natural sound. So when we're in Nana Connie's garden, for example, and she has, like, a pet bumblebee, um, Isabella let us go to her farm in New York, and we recorded there. Wow, how cool is that? It to, was cool. To meet her. Yeah, and to be around her. And yeah. That she's so she's so classy. She's so hyper curious and intelligent. And um, yeah, I was very like, holy shit, this is like a holy person. Yeah, there's nobody like her. She's really extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see that then. Okay, yeah. that's good. So we it's just coming. see her away. All right. So 2019's almost over. Mm-hmm. And you've crushed it. That's nice of you to say. <laughs> you've definitely crushed it. What is 2020 holding for you? I really don't know. I'm going to get married. Congratulations. Um, yeah. So I feel that like I met nice. him you somewhere. Did. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you did. You did. You said, hello, handsome. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we, at, at a birthday party. At a um, birthday party, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm going to get married and... You know, I really would like to be able to give be have the opportunity to write another book. I just found out I'm on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, I know. I saw yeah. like last night. I was congratulations. Yeah. That's huge. I, I'm I'm really glad about it. And I'm yeah. I'm like I just can't believe that they took a bet on me to write this book when I very specifically was like, this is not a book of comedic essays. I'm not giving it to you. I don't know how. And uh, and I really I really want to write another book. So there's that. I'd like to be able to start writing again and like. My dream is that, because um, I, I don't think ambition is like a gross word, but um, I'm not, I'm not like super hungry to just be in any movie, um, but I would like to be in a good movie. I'd like to be in one good movie in the next year. Um, it's sort of a like, I'm like, oh, like, what's Miranda July up to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, um, I just... Uh, I want to be in a good filmmaker's film or not. Yeah. And is writing to you the same as performing? No. It's sort of, it's very different. Writing to me is like much more like, um, it's just fuller. There aren't, there are no restrictions. Because if I wake up one day and there's a feeling that I can't place uh, within my own human female body and I can be like, I'm shrunk. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a worm. Whatever. It, like I can say what my feelings are, and so it's a, uh, it's much more of an act of just staying alive mm-hmm. and and expressing. It's very peaceful. And my partner is a writer. And I was going to say he's an artist or writer. Okay. He's both. He's um, an oil painter. He's a representational oil painter. So he paints like beautiful flowers and, um, and. Um, and he writes essays, and he just won a Pushcart Prize this year. Wow! Congratulations, yeah. handsome. Yeah, he's 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 handsome and smart. Yeah, but um, yeah. I, I also loved all your nature stuff in nah. your book too. That we didn't talk about that, but I love that. Yeah, 
I have a real, really important uh, need for nature, like most. Yeah, people. I want to see your garden. Like I imagine you live wherever it is, and like lots of flowers and green and we colors. We have a big, good uh, nature space around where we live, and we recently. I got home a couple Fridays ago, and there were all these like boxes outside of our house and there was a blanket that belongs inside by the way I can be a little bit controlling about that um but draped over the boxes and I was like hello and Ben ran outside and and he whipped the blanket off the boxes and said I bought you a thousand flowers and it was actually 1300 daffodil and bluebell bulbs that we then spent the next Saturday planting on the hillside next to our house so that they'll come up next spring right before we get married. Which is really dope. <laughs> that's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy for you. Yeah, that's, so that's the way to be. I know? love the bi-coastal, like kind of this rural, coastal, East Coast vibe. I and love then it. the L.A. I love vibe. our community there. I really, it's hard to be back here in a way. I want to be here. I miss my friends, but... um I I don't think that I can, like, continue to live here um, for very much longer. But I don't know. I own my home here. I love mm-hmm. it. It's a lovely old house. Um, but I, I never thought I'd say this, but I, I am fully satisfied living very, very remotely. And that's also because I have the Internet. And I can go to New York to do work or I go to Boston to do voiceover. And I'm still connected. But I don't, like, need this the way that I used to need it. I don't have that mm-hmm. FOMO that mm-hmm. I used to have. I mean, when I met you, I really felt like I have to be involved in everything. And people have to know, like, everything about me. And I have to make sure that I capitalize on this moment. And I actually don't feel like it, that worked out for me very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. My life sort of fell apart in every way. So I have, like, new preferences, new mm-hmm. ways to live now. And back to and back home, kind of. Yeah, but I want to yeah. be an actress forever. I, I yeah. would be really, really sad if that ended for me. So I do have the tension a little bit of like, how much can I let go? And will people forget about me? And I won't be cast in this or that. But one thing a year seems like a reasonable goal. Yeah, there's validity to that fear, I think, for sure. You know, yeah. people, and there's that part about living in Los Angeles of the com- the visual community. You run into people, you see people, you think of things. Yeah. Oh, I just ran into Jenny Slate. She would be perfect, you know. Right. There is that. Which is how I've gotten jobs, truly. Yeah. So that's not going to happen for me, and I have to be okay with that. But I just don't want to be unhappy in my daily life in the way that I have been mm-hmm. or make decisions that – are bad for me out of make out of fear um uh, i just i just now at 37 want different things than i wanted at even 34 and uh i'd like to expand on the point of view that i have but um that was a hard lesson to learn mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure <laughs> for sure yeah but now you know my special's out my book is here and I feel like the people that connect to it are the ones that I want to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rather than like somebody who just wants to like frack me for what they think is individuality, but they d- they're actually afraid of it. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a lot of notes. You know, like, I don't really want that. It's like, we take a meeting with like an executive that's like, we really like what you did here, but then you, like when they you do the project that they hired you to do, they're like terrified of what your ideas are because they don't look normal or whatever. Right. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I'm I'm not. I don't want it. Right. Well, uh, congratulations on everything. Thank you. And it's great to chat with you. It was so nice to I know. be here. I have so many more things. I like being in your company. Case. Always have. Thank you. Yeah. I feel the same way. Mm. I'm happy that like you get to sit in these chairs and do this. Have yeah, cool it's fun, isn't it? It's yeah. so I think about usually I'm used to talking and interviewing and then you know, putting it through a funnel and mm-hmm. telling a story through words. So it's it's kind of so much more naked in a way just to sit here and talk to someone and, and not be able to filter it. Yes. And also I'm naked. We haven't mentioned yeah. it. Of course, no one can see. But yeah. I've been nude the whole time. I know. And you look great with just with the belt uh, to accentuate Weirdly, your I'm waist. Weirdly, I'm wearing a belt. That's weird. I don't know. But you never know, you know, when you're going to need a belt. So I just kept it on. Yeah. Yeah. That and my yarmulke, of course. <laughs> All right, Jenny, thank you so much. And I'm going to have you sign my book. I got you. Okay. Thanks so much for joining me. Stage Fright is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.